Thank you, Pastor. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to take them to Acts chapter number 4. Acts chapter number 4. We have on Wednesday night over the past several months uh, been going through our Baptist faith and message, the document on which we um, anchor our beliefs and, and uh, the structure in which we undergird what we do here as a Southern Baptist church. And I am thankful we spoke of this at the elders meeting um, last night and how that God has sovereignly addressed certain situations that have come up, certain needs and, and, and issues that have come up uh, sovereignly through, through, through the Holy Spirit's direction back in December, I think, Pastor. Wasn't it December when we had decided in, uh, together to kind of go in this direction? And so we can see God's hand at work among us through the pulpit ministry at this church, and I'm thankful for that. So Acts chapter number 4 and verse number 13. We're going to talk on the article 17 tonight on the subject of religious liberty. And I would like to say from the onset uh, that this, will, this message will be woefully inadequate. As I read the statements, there are so many directions and applications as to what we'll be talking about tonight that really need to be said, but you don't have the time and I don't have the stamina. And so we're just going to dive right into this and try to pick up pebbles off the top of this subject. But I think the heart of what we're talking about tonight can be found in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. We'll read down through verse number 22, a scene that is probably familiar, but yet touches the nerve of religious liberty. Acts chapter number, uh, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave uh, the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For, uh, that, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that they may that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Our text takes us back to the early fledgling days of the Christian church. Upon the healing of the man at the gate called Beautiful, the lame man who was raised to walk, Peter and John were arrested and charged not to preach in the name of Jesus. They were fine with the healing. They were fine with the good that had been done. But it was the polarizing name and character of the man Jesus. They were threatened to refrain from speaking in the name of Jesus. 
Of course, Peter's response, we read it. We cannot help but speak what we have seen and heard. It is here that the battle lines of religious liberty and religious freedom were drawn, defined. It seems that this is the first excursion into that territory. You turn to the next chapter and the fight continues out of jealousy. All the apostles were arrested this time and brought before the Sanhedrin and during the night they were kept in prison but the, uh, the angel of the Lord had something to say about religious freedom and religious liberty and so the angel of the Lord come down and opened the prison door and they went and stand and speak the name of Jesus when the Sanhedrin found out again they brought them back unto them and charged them, why are you doing this? And, and, and Peter famously said, we must obey God rather than man. Peter's words in chapter 4 and chapter 5 really polarize the issue of religious liberty. You know, it's a struggle that continued past through the book of Acts on into the Roman Empire and with, the murder, with its murderous Caesars and its bloody arenas, the history of Rome is stained with the blood of Christians longing to worship God through the dictates of their own conscience. This struggle came to a head centuries later after the Dark Ages in 1517 when a Catholic monk, a professor of theology at Wittenberg, nailed these 95 theses, these 95 bones to pick with the Catholic Church where its practices seemingly defy that which is plainly taught in the Word of God. And from that, the Reformation was born. It was about a religious Freedom, a freedom to worship God, not constrained by the dictates of the Catholic Church, but by the Word of God alone. The Reformation was born. But it wasn't too long later that uh, in the 1600s, 1680s, that, uh, that the Church of, or, or earlier than that, that the Church of England was born, a Reformation church. And that Church of England had a doctrine that said that the head of that church, of the Christian church is the king on the throne in England. Well, the Scots didn't agree with that. Being brought under the sound teaching of John Knox, there is only one head of, of the church of Jesus Christ, and that is he himself, Jesus. And so from that, here we got two Reformation churches, one persecuting the other. Uh, uh, Scottish covenanters were chased throughout the country and killed. I am familiar with a 16-year-old girl by the name of Margaret Wilson, who would not pray the prayer of abjuration, who would not pray the prayer uh, that would agree that the head of the church is Rome, and she was drowned at the Bledknot River because she was unwilling uh, to change and to conform to that which lay outside of her conscience. It was then that the Puritans uh, that fled the new world to worship God by the dictates of their conscience. And then, then the Puritans forced their doctrines on the Baptists and wouldn't let them worship by constrained by their uh, findings in the Word of God. It happens over and over and over again. It is a fight that never goes away for religious liberty. It's a story that is reborn again and again through history. Therefore, it is vital 
that we, we think of its implications and importances today. And, uh, you know, in my lifetime, although we've had a culture battle uh, that has gone on for decades, we have uh, and seen slights to the Christian church as far as their liberty. We have rarely seen direct assaults against it. And so therefore we can be lured and lulled into a complacency when it comes to our religious liberties. That's why it's always important to keep these truths at the fore. So we'll read our article in its entirety and then we'll look at it piece by piece. Here it is, Article 17 of the Baptist Faith and Message. God alone is Lord of the conscience. And he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to his word and not contained in it. Church and state should be separate. The state owes to every church protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. In providing for such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. Civil governments being ordained of God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereto in all things not contrary to the revealed will of God. The church should not resort to the civil power to carry on its work. The gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends. The state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. The state has no right to impose taxes for the support of any form of religion. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. And this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by the civil powers. I hope you have dinner in front of you because we've got a ways to go. I want to unpack these in five headings. So, number one, I want you to see a divine authorship. Notice at the beginning, it says that God alone is the Lord of the conscience. Our article clearly starts with the origin and the author of religious liberty, and it is God himself. The, our statement of beliefs recognize that a person's conscience and religious affections are solely provided to them by God himself. Each person has been created in the image of God, and as God's image bearers, he provides us with the means to image forth or reflect his purposes. Now, what is interesting about this article is, is that as you read it, it seems as though at some points it's talking to ourselves internally, which for the most part, as we've gone through uh, these articles of faith, we have been seeing how we are to conduct ourselves internally, how what we are to believe internally. And so there's parts of this in which it, it, it comes internally, points to us, but at the same time, in this particular statement, I think more than others, it announces certain things 
to the world at large that looks upon us as a religious group. This is what we believe your responsibility is outside of the church. So it's an interesting uh, uh, dynamic in this, in this article. And so here, here we see uh, that we'll see also later that there's some statements outside, and we'll get to that. So when it comes to the conscience and its authorship by God, it speaks internally to us. When it, when it talks about what it does, because it, it, it talks about how that, uh, it goes back, it says, he has left us free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to his word or not contained in it. So here it's saying that our conscience is to be captivated by the word of God. But that's not, uh, uh, that's not incumbent upon the world at large. The world at large would not acknowledge God's word as something their conscience should be constrained to. So I think we can deduce that it is talking we are talking to ourselves here when it comes to this uh, conscience now the statement that I'm, uh, I just made uh, may sound uh, 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 our, our conscience is to be held captive by the word of God now that statement may sound familiar to you does it does it sound a little bit vaguely familiar you see, it's, it should because it was a statement that was made by the Catholic monk named Martin Luther when he was at the Diet of Worms and they had all of his writings on the table. And they asked him, are these all your writings? And he believes, yeah, yes, they are. And then they say, do you recant any of them? And he is... He is come to a point where he has to make a decision about what he believes and his statement is this, unless I'm convinced by the sacred scripture or by, uh, 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 by uh, evident reason, I cannot recant for my conscience is held captive by the word of God and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. So that's why it sounds familiar. Martin Luther said my, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. Just like we as Baptists say our conscience is held captive by the Word of God. We would say the same thing. But being a Baptist and being a Lutheran are two different things. You Would you agree? They're two different things. They have differences when it comes to their beliefs about baptism. And they have uh, beliefs that are different according to the Lord's Supper. And there may be other varying degrees of differences. But we can say uh, that Baptists and Lutherans are very different even though they say their conscience is, is constrained to the Word of God. So we can see there are differing opinions about what is to be captivated as far as our conscience. When we look at the Word of God, there are some things that there's no room for differing on. And we've talked about those primary doctrines, secondary doctrines, tertiary doctrines. Tertiary, we can, we can, we can live together and, and pre-trib, post-trib, whatever you want to think about of that, things like that. We can, we can you know, poke at each other and, and kind of debate and talk, but it's something that we can live with. Secondary, uh, it may be those things that divide us as a denomination, like a Lutheran and a Baptist, but primary is a non-negotiable. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, there are primary doctrines uh, that, that, that must be held. But these varying different viewpoints come from the fact that our conscience is held captive in different ways. Our conscience is developed in different ways. You know, a lot of people ask, well, why is the Christian church so fragmented? You know, if we were just all on the same page, we got so many denominations. Why? Jesus never intended us to have all these different denominations. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess he would prefer us to be together. 
But the reality is, is that Baptists and Lutheran, they may fellowship with each other around the table at a local restaurant for a time being, but as far as the objectives and the priorities and the, uh, the incidentals of those denominations, we would be hard-pressed to move forward in our objective to reach the world for Jesus Christ if we were constantly fighting battles over the Lord's Supper and over baptism. I'm going to rip this thing off and around here. I don't know what's going on. This has never happened before. It might be my ears. I don't know. But uh, And so here we can see things differently. You see, God uh, gave us the conscience. It's a gift from God. And he created people as moral and spiritual beings possessing moral conscience. This indicates that God intends for the human creature to be both free from constraint of conscience outside the word of God, but also responsible for our conscience. The world doesn't get away. They don't have to be held constrained by the word of God in their conscience. But know this, they're responsible. Just like we're responsible consciously by what we read and how we look at and how we stand on the teachings of God's word. We can also take the principle and turn it outwardly toward the world at large and declare that every human has been given a conscience and no other human can strip that gift away. The only person that will answer to the concerning that gift is uh, they will answer to is God Himself. You know, Islam has conquered nation after nation after nation in the Middle East. But I dare say it's not from their philosophies, it is not from their philosophic worldviews or the beauty of their religion, but from the blood of a sword. You see, by, brutal, by a brutal fist, that forces the conscience to conform to their standard. This is not what Christianity is to be. It is a message declared firmly and yet lovingly of God's coming judgment and of God's present redemption. We cannot compel the conscience because we believe the conscience is given by God. Therefore, every man must develop their conscience, but we can do all that we can to compel the conscience, but not apprehend it. Personal God-given conscience lies at the heart of religious freedom. I believe that's why it's the first statement. This is the heart of it. The conscience of mankind, divine authorship. Second of all, a government corollary a governmental corollary I'd like to admit publicly that I'm a weirdo the roots of my weirdness go all the way back to the 10th grade that was the year that I was handed my first geometry book I'm telling you what I had no idea that the light would go off when I went into geometry I'm not talking just about math and angles and perpendicular. I'm talking about logic, solving a problem. I'm talking about rules and, and postulates and, and proofs that, that just for some reason it clicked with learning. It clicked with deduction. One of those things in that geometry that I became familiar with is the word corollary. A corollary 
is a resulting rule of a higher rule or truth. So the next statement in Article 17, I would say, was a corollary statement. The first one is that God gives the conscience. He's Lord of the conscience. He gives it to be freely and uh, to be free and unconstrained by outside forces. The second part says the church and state should be separate. The state owes to every church protection and full freedom in pursuit of its spiritual ends. In providing for such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. If God is the giver of a free conscience, to think and believe by the growth and the dictates of that conscience and of their own mental capacities, then the government authority has no right to commandeer this gift. If it's given by God, uh, this is a bad illustration. I, I didn't put it in my notes, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Listen, have you ever regifted a gift? You know, somebody gave it to you and you take it and give it to somebody else as a gift. Listen, God gives the gift of the conscience. They don't get to jerk it out of God's hands and say, oh, we brought you a gift. It's called, it's called religious freedom. No, 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 no. That's not it at all. They cannot commandeer this gift and give it back to you with strings attached. This is why religious liberty is not a mere toleration of certain beliefs, but is a recognition of that the very nature of humanity implies a respect for this right and liberty. I don't want to be tolerated. I want my views to be at least acknowledged as, as being rightfully my own. And not just simply put up with. Governing bodies have no right to intercept this gift of God, put their name on it, and give it to us with strings attached. I like what George Truitt said as he preached on the U.S. Capitol in 1920. He said, it is the natural and fundamental and indefeasible right of every human being to worship God or not according to the dictates of his conscience and as long as he does not infringe upon the rights of others. He is to be held accountable alone to God for all religious beliefs and practices. Our contention is not for mere toleration but for absolute liberty. There is a wide difference between toleration and and liberty. Toleration implies that somebody falsely claims the right to tolerate. Toleration is a concession while liberty is a right. Toleration is a matter of expediency. Boy, that's good. Toleration is a matter of expediency while liberty is a matter of principle. Toleration is a gift from man while liberty is a gift from God. It is the constant and in, uh, it's the consistent and insistent contention of our Baptist people always and everywhere that religion must be forever voluntary and uncoerced and that it is not Per, uh, the prerogative of any power, whether civil or ecclesiastical, to compel men to conform to any religious creed or form of worship or to pay taxes for the support of a religious organization to which they do not believe God wants free worshipers no other kind. To, end quote. Today, 
we're faced with a religious oppression that does not necessarily come from the Catholic Church or from the Church of England or from the Puritans per se. No, the religious oppression of this day and time is thrust upon the Baptist Church and Orthodox Christianity as a whole by the Church of the Holy Woke. That's the title of an article you can go and read, but it is a fitting title. It is a denomination of the sexual revolution which will not tolerate language which comes as a direct result of the clear teaching of the Word of God. Oh, no, they have not come. Uh, no, they've not come to your house yet, okay? Presenting your Facebook posts and your voting record and your charitable giving and they lay it out on the table and they say, are these your works? Do you recant these like they did Martin Luther? No, the Holy Church of the Woke, they're not there yet. But that is exactly what's happening in the corporate world. We talked about this in our elders meeting last night. The corporate world is being challenged and brought before either their no-siding or their slight favoritism one way or another politically and basically are being said, are these your writings? Will you recant? And because they have the mic of the media, they have the ownership of, of the news stations and the, and, and the newspapers and every outlet, they will drive your business to the ground lest ye bow the knee to the holy church of the woke. That is exactly what is happening. And no, it's not at your doorstep yet. They, they've, not, they've not put it all on the table in front of you. But it's a small step from it. This hasn't happened really from the federal level, from our government per se. But the highest court in the land, the, the land seems to be less and less interested in being an interpreter of the law and the Constitution and more prone to be a shaper of belief and an arbiter of what is right and wrong, more than, than interpreting the law. Yet our very nation was founded on the principle of religious freedom. Not personal autonomy. Not sexual liberty, but religious freedom, religious liberty. Our Declaration of Independence from England clearly states we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Did you catch that? Given by God. That means they don't belong to the government. They don't belong to the reigning authorities of superior courts. They belong to God. It acknowledges that there are rights that come directly from God. And we find the religious freedom, the freedom of the conscience spelled out in the First Amendment to the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or, or the press or the right for people to peaceably assemble or to petition government for redress of grievances. We believe in a governmental corollary. That since God gave me the gift of conscience, 
You cannot rip it from my mind. You cannot take it from me and make me believe something that in conscience I cannot believe. It's an overreach and take, and they cannot overreach and take what is not theirs to begin with. A divine authorship, a governmental corollary. Thirdly, a qualified responsibility. Article goes on to say, civil government being ordained of God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience there, thereto in all things to uh, to, uh, not contrary to the revealed word of God. So let's be clear. Just because I have religious liberty does not mean that we are free, un- a law free unto ourselves. What, from, what can, what I under, from what I understand, I'm trying to get it out, what I understand, uh, this is what the Muslim community and Muslim faith wants. They want a Sharia law. They want a religious law that's part and parcel to their religion. They they govern themselves. They hold their own courts. They execute their own laws and enforcement. They enforce the laws of their religion upon society around them. That is not what Christianity does. The Apostle Paul made that clear in Romans 13, 1 and 2. Every person is to be subject in the governing authorities for there is no authority except for, from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has uh, opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. I want to remind you, Paul didn't live in the good old US, U.S. of A then. Paul lived in a pagan world in Rome. And yet he says that they are divinely placed and should be obeyed. You see, God is the ultimate appointer of leadership. As Christians, we understand the source of the government's authority is God himself. In Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, Jesus was questioned about matters concerning the government. And when he asked for a coin with an image on it, he, uh, he asked a He asked them, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Meaning, render to Caesar the things that belong to him, indicating the things that have his image, the coin. You give your coinage to them. It's his. But we we pay our taxes, we obey the law, the only time that principle is not followed is when the, and it follows the image of man, God's image on man. I'm not to give him myself. I can give him my coinage. He can tax my lands. He can do all kinds of things uh, as far as this world is concerned. But when it comes to me, an image bearer of God, if I have not violated his law and I only believe something that is contrary to the whim of what he wants, he is not allowed to take me. I render the image of God on me to God. You see, a key Christian principle is that we live according to the laws established by the God-ordained governments, we pay our taxes, but we biblically follow our God. And the only time we are at odds, to be odds with our government, according to our statement, is when it 
opposes the, the express will of God. That takes us back to Peter and John. Hey, we must say what we have seen and heard. We must obey God rather than man. I'll do whatever I can to appease you and to follow your rules and to follow your regulations. But when it comes to what we've seen and heard, when it comes to obeying God, I must object. I must politely and forcibly refuse to follow your dictates and mandates. The pressure today is not much different. The culture at large says that they will tolerate us Christians, but we must be quiet. I, I remember Dr. Albert Moeller, he says this quote time and time again. It's from a journalist and somewhere in the United States. I, can, I could not place it, but the journalist said something like this, that if there is any room for religion in our modern culture, then it must be confined our religion to our hearts, our homes, and our sanctuaries. You Christians, you be good. Sit down, shut up, keep quiet. You do what I say, and you speak where I tell you to speak. You basically conform your conscience to my rules. In other words, just keep to yourselves. But this is where we repeat the words of Peter. We must obey God rather than man. A divine authorship, a governmental corollary, a qualified responsibility, number four, an operational autonomy. An operational autonomy. The fourthly, our article says the church should not resort to the civil power to carry on its work. The gospel of Jesus Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends. The state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. And the state has no right to impose taxes for the support of any form of religion. Most of us, you listening and you here and you at home, we've lived in a nation where we have become accustomed to a church uh, that is not connected to the federal government. Uh, I've got scars in my, in my worry wart <laughs> over my church making it. When I pastored a little, little church in Rossville, where are we going to be able to pay the insurance payment? I, I've got scars from worrying about it. Government didn't step in and pay my insurance. I was on my own. That's not, that, uh, that's not the way it is all around the world. You take, for example, Switzerland, which is the most uh, oldest democratic government in the world, established in 1291, has a federal church tax to support the state church. All pastors and employees are of the federal government. The same is true with the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church is much in the debate right now whether they will continue to support the Anglican Church as far as the federal government is concerned there in England. But as a denomination within Great Britain, it is supported by government funding, i.e. taxpayer dollars, support the churches in England. That is not the case here in the United States, as you well know. We do not depend on the government to fulfill our Christian mandate from Jesus. We believe in a clear separation of the church from the state, meaning the state does not hold sway over the church. Now, this issue is front and center in our day. It's on the headlines. When it comes to this virus and this 
historical moment we live in because of disease. This notion has been challenged in the U.S. like never before. And although because of love of neighbor, the church for the most part has sympathetically, temporarily yielded some of our liberties to this end. I want to make something clear. Make no mistake about it. This is not a capitulation to completely and voluntarily give away the liberties which we rightfully possess as citizens of this nation to assemble as peace, peaceably assemble to worship our God unhindered. We have every right to come together. Every right to worship by the dictates of our conscience. We have a right to bring our, we also have the right to bring our biblically informed understanding of moral truth to the nation's debates and public policy. Just because I'm a Christian does not bar me from jumping in the arena of political ideas. It doesn't discount me nor my arguments that I am a Christian uh, from uh, participating in the national debate. We have every right just as every other religious group to engage the culture in the battle of ideas and contend for the hearts and the minds of the popular conscience of this nation. I believe in many avenues we are sorely losing and sorely lacking. But when it does come, I believe that the church has had an effect uh, in the area of abortion. Uh, not counting the... Uh, the uh, uh, I'm going to try to say this nicely. I'm on TV. Uh, uh, the, the recent uh, deplorable and heinous... Uh, Stab in the back we've gotten from the Supreme Court lately when it comes to uh, abortion laws. I believe that we are we have made some progress in in millennials uh, concerning abortion and its outlaw and eventual toppling. But we can have an impact on our culture. You know, there's something unique about the gospel of Jesus Christ that separates it from every, every other plan or program. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, not the government funding, not the government backing, not the government proper, uh, propagation, for it, the gospel, has the, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, uh, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the only thing that brings salvation, that brings change in the hearts and lives of individuals. It may not change the social standing, the financial standing, the relational standing, the educational standing. All those things uh, are well and good and we should endeavor to try to change those in, in the realm of politics. All those things are good but they do not bring the type of lasting change that answers the deepest needs of the heart. You see with all the governmental programs that exist and all the programs and plans that are created as much as politicians offer policies uh, that they believe will better life, they cannot offer you or me or anyone 
anyone else the change that is needed. The deepest need of the human heart is, is, deliver, is not deliverance from disease. The deepest need of the human heart is not social and racial harmony or political agreement. The deepest need of the human heart is for every man, woman, boy, and girl to be saved by the grace of God, to be forgiven of their trespasses and embraced in the family of God. No government program can help that. Only the gospel has the power to provide such salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message of the church, the gospel. When churches cease to communicate the gospel, churches cease to be, uh, cease to be fulfilling their purpose as Christ has commanded. The way this should work is that the government should want to take a hands-off approach to the church because the church is having such an impact. The church is the light on the hill, the light of the world. The church is making a difference in society, in culture, in poverty, in other areas of, of, of concern. The church is making a difference that they should not want to hinder what the church is doing, but sad to say, we are not, as a whole, making progress in this area. Peter gives us an encouragement, 1 Peter 2, 12-17, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, to the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that you, by doing right, might Silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. There is an operational autonomy that we are to complete the mission that God has sent us on through his son Jesus Christ without the aid of or implementation of anything but the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Last of all, an unhindered exercise. Our article ends with a free church and a free state is the Christian ideal. And this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men. And the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by the civil power. I cannot help but believe that this statement, as beautifully written as it is, that this statement, that the longings and the communication of this paragraph is what brought many of our forefathers and our ancestors and the founders of this country to this place to find that kind of freedom. To worship God by the dictates of conscience. Conscience being bound either to the word of God or not to the word of God. And many, even upon arriving, found religious restriction. I think of Obadiah Holmes. You cannot, you cannot be a Baptist and talk about religious liberty without thinking of Obadiah Holmes. He was a a man from England came from England to live in the Massachusetts seeking religious freedom. After a dozen years, Holmes found 
the persecution in the new land unbearable and moved to the wilderness of Newport, Rhode Island. He became the assistant to John Clark, the pastor of the Baptist Church in Newport. On July of 1651, John Clark, Obadiah Holmes, and another man went visiting a sick church member who could not attend the assembly. And there they had uh, oh, one of them, uh, uh, what do you call the, the home meetings, uh, uh, the, the prayer, prayer meetings in the home. And uh, uh, John Clark was up preaching, and they were worshiping God. And while they were conducting the service, three men come into the home and rudely arrested uh, the three men and took them to Boston for trial. They ordered uh, they either pay a considerable fine or be publicly whipped. A sympathetic uh, sympathizers to their plight raised some money and was able to raise enough to get Charles, uh, 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 Mr. Uh, Pastor Clark, and the other man out of prison. But Obadiah Holmes was left to face the whip. Holmes was held in jail until September. Uh, the fifth, and then taken to the public whipping post. He was stripped to the waist, tied to the post. Holmes received 30 heavy strokes with a three-cord whip wielded by the executioner with both hands. Holmes' back turned to a bloody mass of torn flesh. He was beaten so badly that they had, he had to sleep on his hands and knees for weeks afterward. What a price to pay for the paragraph that we see here in front of us to worship God by the dictates of our conscience. A price paid in blood that we take for granted and we sleep soundly in our days and nights as our religious liberty that Obadiah Holmes would have prized is chipped away. Ruling by ruling. Hometown law by hometown law. City ordinance by city ordinance. A state decree by state decree. May God give us a vigilance to preserve and protect our God-given right to worship God by the free exercise of our conscience. I think the whole meaning of this and going over this is that we would be vigilant. That we would make, make more an objective of prayer and voice our concern. We need heaven intervening more than anything. More than my tongue or my mouth can make a difference. I need heaven to intervene. But at the same time, we are to speak and we are to encourage one another and we are to pray that God would help us to, God would preserve our religious liberties in this day and hour. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, there's so much that could have been addressed. So much that we're taught from your word on this. Father, I pray that you would help us to delve deeply and to remember these stories of those that have paid so great a price. Margaret Wilson, Obadiah Holmes. God, I pray that you would help us to honor them by being vigilant, aware, knowledgeable about what is taking place in our culture and to the religious liberties that we at one time prized to such great degree, but it seems as though uh, we're willing to concede them for safety. Father, I pray, I pray, God, that you would deliver us from persecution, 
That you would give us boldness as Peter and John to proclaim the name of Jesus, whatever fine, whatever repercussion we may feel in this world. Father, we know, we know from your word, from the prophecies that it details that it's only getting worse. It's only going to get worse. So Father, I pray that you would give us a strength and a desire that we desperately need in this hour to preserve liberty and to be able to hand it to our children that they may enjoy worshiping God through the dictates of their their conscience and not be be ham-fisted, captive by popular opinion, but be constrained by the Word of God. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.